Morning, everybody. I add my welcome to to Sam's and Tim's this morning. Um, yeah, next week is going to be something. We've got our uh, our kids' church and club freeway coming out here uh, to take over the service, if you like, um, and and just probably uh, run amok. You know, there's always a rogue sheep or a little rogue angel. Who wants to go off script and, and our, our club freeway and our crash guys, are, they're like Jesus. They're really well trained just to, to go and get them and, and to bring them back in and restore them into right standing in the, in the play. But um, we're, we, we're looking forward to it. Now, uh, bring friends and family. Uh, if you've got little kids that haven't been in club freeway and, and you want to just chuck them in, uh, we've got plenty of, um, there's never enough angels in a nativity scene play, so um, feel free to bring them along. And they're going to be talking to us about our greatest need, out of the mouths of children, hey? And uh, you're going to be hearing about that. Hey, um, we're back into uh, Jonah again this week. Who was here last week? I was away. I was up in Wodonga at my mum's 70th. That message from Dave. Yeah, if you haven't heard it, probably one of the better messages that's ever been preached uh, here in this church. Uh, it was a cracker. Uh, feel free to go online and, and download the little podcast thing and listen to it. Uh, it. It was great. I loved it. I listened to it three times. Anyway, before we get into Jonah and what we're going to deal with today, I've got something else that I need to deal with, need to kind of get out of the way. And I've been kind of toying with how uh, I might do this. There's a bit of an element of risk uh, in this kind of public uh, sharing, if you like. Uh, It's kind of a little bit of good news, bad news, and I'm literally going to ask you which way you want me to talk to you about it. And we'll do that by a simple raising of your hands, whether you want me to start with the bad news first. You just raise your hand and ease up, ease up. Hey, work with me. I'm nervous. And, and then if you want the good news first, you raise your hand. I've got a kind of feeling where this is heading. If you want me to talk about the bad news first, just raise your hand. Hi, I've got to see him. Be confident in your decisions, people. Okay, you're driving this show. What about if you want to hear the good news first? <laughs> Optimists. All right, okay. <laughs> Here's the good news. <laughs> well, here's the bad news. I, I kind of been playing. You're all part of a social. You're part of a social experiment. Here's the good news. You're very normal. Uh, you are extraordinarily normal. In an article that was published in the National Geographic back in 2013, November 2013, according to Angela Legg, she's got a PhD in psychology from the University of California, and she did some research into this very question about good news and bad news, and and, and which people prefer to have first. And she found this, that if you were receiving the news, uh, overwhelmingly the majority of people, more than 75% wanted the bad news first. Yeah. And conversely, she found, though, that if you were delivering the news, you wanted to deliver the good news first. Uh, Basically, what she found was that hearing bad news first 
helps us appreciate the good news. It gives us a contrast that leaves us ultimately positive in spirit about the bad news. There's, there's hope. We heard the bad news. We heard the good news. There's hope. And for those speaking out the news, they were anxious about the bad news, not sure how it was going to land. So they wanted to get the good news out first and just kind of tack the bad news on at the end. Angela Legg, PhD in psychology from the University of California, in her research has stumbled onto a design spec of the gospel. I doubt she even knows it. Somebody needs to send her the podcast. In order to be truly transformed by good news, you have to hear the bad news first. To get the full magnitude of God's love for you, you have to sit with the reality that there really is no compelling reason for that love. And that's probably the worst news of all. You have to sit with and hear that you are in need of a saviour, that you are far more worse than you ever dared admit, dare acknowledge, that you have and do consistently place yourself over God as an authority in your life, which is the human condition that God calls sin, which is the human condition that, that God can't tolerate being God, just by his very nature, and ends in death across all lines bad news but that news while alarming and discomforting is counted with good news God at great cost to himself is pursuing sinful people in love to restore them that you are far more loved than you could ever possibly imagine by God sits with the gospel James writes this about how God pursues people. He writes in the New Testament, quoting Proverbs 3, 4, that God gives grace. He gives grace to those who humble themselves to the news, to this bad news, who those who recognize, yeah, we, we're bad. He gives grace to them, to those who dethrone themselves in confession and repentance. They are supplied, they are given grace by God to walk through deep heart transformation. And then to live in obedience and not rebellion. That is good news. Probably the best news. But to those who would continue in pride, they will continue to feel the fierce and jealous, relentless pursuit of God to awake them to their rebellion, to create discomfort and wake them from their sin. Here's the thing. We need bad news first to truly drink the grace of God's good news. Particularly when it comes to our own position before him. Particularly when it comes to our need of his grace in our lives. Our need of his saving, redeeming grace in our lives. In the book of Jonah, we have got to see how bad news is the agent of grace that changes both the morally good, who seek to control God or put God in their debt, and the morally wicked who seek to make God irrelevant to their behavior or their consequences. In the story of Jonah, we saw, or we found, Jonah had never really thought that the bad news of God's wrath applied to him. He is a Hebrew, he said on the boat. I am a Hebrew, one of God's special people. He fears the Lord. 
He, he, he worships. He participates in the, in, the, in the rites and the rituals of worship of God, be it rather religiously and ritually, but he participates in that. He fears the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, who made the earth and the sea and all that. In Good news. I'm a good person who does good things. That's his big claim in chapter 1. I am good because of my heritage and my practice. Grew up in a Christian home, went to church every Sunday, excelled in my gifting. I was called uh, out to be a national religious hero of Israel. God used me, literally used me to save this nation. But for all his good works and boasting, God exposes something in Jonah's heart. And we were kind of shocked to see it. That it is just as idolatrous and in need of grace as the wicked pagans in that great city of Nineveh that he refuses to go to. And if you've been tracking along, you will know that Jonah, as I said, he's just this religious hero, a prophet of God, and Nineveh is a great city that celebrated its depravity, that took joy and pride in how brutal it was towards mankind. In fact, we get a glimpse of Nineveh's DNA through one of Jonah's contemporaries. He he was a bit later, Nahum. He's a prophet. He was a prophet to Israel, but he also spoke with respect to Nineveh. If you flick over a few pages in your Bible, you'll find Nahum there. In chapter 3, we read this. You might find it on the brochure at the information center as you head into Nineveh. Welcome to Nineveh. There's plenty to do here if you revel in telling lies and plundering towns and villages. If you're into witchcraft and child sacrifice and murderous behavior, you're going to love Nineveh. In fact, as you walk around our streets, you'll see all the dead bodies piled up from just how we behave. That's Nineveh. So you can understand why Jonah feels a bit more entitled to God's love than he thinks Nineveh should be entitled to. He's good, they are bad. So when God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh on his behalf and call out against them, which is what a prophet normally did to Israel to bring them back into right relationship with God, Jonah's own heart is exposed. His own idolatry is exposed. His goodness. He's like, on what basis do the wicked deserve the same grace as the good? And God has jumped out of all of Jonah's categories. And God's bad news to Jonah, this good man, is that both good and bad are hopelessly sinking, hopelessly drowning in their own activities and that if you regard your goodness as your salvation then you you sacrifice you forsake the steadfast love of god you you put your goodness in place of an actual relationship with god and likewise if you regard your self-discovery your autonomy from god for your salvation you too forsake the love of the Lord, just in a more overt way. It's a painful realization for Jonah as he's encased in certain death inside a great fish. And it brings him to the end of himself. And again, Dave's sermon last week is just great. To the end of himself, an acceptance in his own heart that salvation comes from God alone, on his terms and through his provision. Not good works, not self-empowerment, but by grace 
to the undeserving, both good and bad. Good Jonah needs God's grace as much as wicked Nineveh. And as much as Jonah doesn't like that news, it, it begins to change him. It begins to take away any right uh, to hold prejudices, any right to have entitlement. Bad news is made sweet with good news. And the good news comes to to Jonah by him remembering the character of God. Psalm 2 reads like a psalm. If you picked it up off the street, you'd swear you were reading one of the psalms. But it's actually a whole compilation of a whole different lot of psalms. And what Jonah's doing is he's remembering the character of God. He's reminding himself about the truth of God and, and who God is. The Jonah that gets vomited up on the western coast of Assyria from the Assyrian Empire is a very different Jonah to the one that was hurled into the Mediterranean Sea. An experience of restoring grace in the life of the Christian drives obedience. And that is what has happened in Jonah's life. Uh, a new understanding of God, seeing God in a, in a bit of a different framework has, has brought Jonah to a place of restoration. Sometimes the knowledge of this grace uh, gives us strength. Well, this is what grace does, really, in the lives of a person. It gives us strength to trust a, a better promise, a different promise, a better promise of, re, of reward and experience that, than is on offer from perhaps what's in front of us. Grace gives us the strength to, to stay true to our marriage when perhaps an affair is on the table. Grace gives us the strength to tell the truth rather than to, to jump into a lie and make more of ourselves and perhaps we need to. Grace enables us to, to you know, deny, say no to cheap, cheap thrills, if you like, and porn sites and things like that, knowing that purity is the road to presence with God. Grace even comes to enable us to recover from failure and re-engaging in our call when, when we actually fail in all these areas. Grace reminds us that the character of God and his commitment to us will continue to pursue us and restore us. And we have seen that in the life of Jonah. His grace pursues us, his commitment to us pursues us even into the most deepest and vile of spaces. That is the grace that Jonah found. That is the grace that meets Jonah in a mixture of fish vomit and sand from a national hero to washed up fish vomit. Jonah could have, in that moment, just sort of stomped off in self-pity again, just gone, you've got to be kidding me, and just walked off. But something greater has gripped his heart. In the language of chapter 3, it allows for Jonah's free will to determine what he will do next. When the Lord renews his call over his life, will Jonah act in obedience or will he just continue in renewed rebellion? And we can't read it as we read through it, but there is literally this lingering suspense between verse 2 and verse 3. What is Jonah going to do as the Lord renews his call? But now what we see in Jonah is a different man, a man who responds with obedience. Grace 
is what drives obedience in the lives of a Christian. Notice how when God speaks to Jonah again, there's no mention of his past. There's no mention of his failure. No mention of Jonah's dark despair. No mention of Jonah's, even Jonah's promise to, to pay what he has vowed. God does not say to Jonah, hey, you owe me. Hey, I, I, you were going to die and I, and I brought you back. You owe me. Rosemary Nixon remarks that there is a certain humility to God when he calls Jonah a second time. Isn't that just how God is to us when we fail, when we, when we kind of get things wrong, when we don't push into grace to hold us in place? God just restores us. It's painful in the restoration, but once we're there, he never points backwards again. He just points forward to say, this is where we're going. Jonah has an 800-kilometer walk on his hands to get to Nineveh. Plenty of time just to spend with God. Plenty of time just to, to get back into relationship. It's a confronting moment. Probably just as confronting as it was in the fish. When the Jonah here has been reminded that God uh, doesn't just discard or wipe people due to their failure but gives grace to those who can humble themselves, gives grace to those who can dethrone themselves of their own ambitions, of their own idols, of their own affections, and have a renewed affection for God. There's a lesson here for us in the vomit and the sand and the loss of Jonah's reputation. God is in the business of restoring rebels, those who have forsaken the love of God the presence of God for their own ambitions, for their own comforts, for their own plans. And we can sometimes think, as I said, we can sometimes think that these actions disqualify us from, from grace, disqualify us from service of God. The good news to us, to our self-perceived bad news, is that God desires to restore those who can humble themselves and set themselves back on a renewed path of obedience. This kind of theme in the Bible, this kind of relationship with people in the Bible is captured beautifully in David's Psalm 51. And I'm pretty confident that uh, none of us have kind of uh, sinned, transgressed, if you like, or messed up like David has. I don't know if you've ever kind of had an affair on anyone and killed their husband to get away with it and led Israel into sin and depravity, but we're after David acknowledges that his sin is against God. We see God's grace renew him with a right spirit, bring him back into a right relationship with God. And then as David is re- restored, brought back into relationship with God, he says, and I will teach transgressors God's ways and sinners will turn to God. David's not restored to go off in triumphant, victorial things. He's restored to speak about the grace and the mercy of God towards sinners, that other sinners might come and return to God. Sounds a little bit like Jonah's journey to me. Again, perhaps in the New Testament, we, we know we're pretty familiar with the story of Peter and how Peter is restored by Jesus after denying his relationship with Jesus. He, 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 he swears and 
curses and says, I don't want anything to do with that Jesus character. And literally denies his relationship and his friendship with Jesus to a, like a 15-year-old girl. And Jesus meets him on the beach and restores him back. And it's painful for Peter. As Jesus goes after his heart three times, just, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He wants to get to Peter's heart about his relationship and remind him of his relationship with Jesus. And Peter is undone. You know, you know, you know I love you. But he's restored. A God who pursues the rebel in grace to restore us. But listen, while God is gentle with our souls over our failures, there's no soft edges to his call of obedience. Jonah is to go to that great city, Nineveh, and he is still to do that outrageous thing. He is still to call out against it, the message that God will tell him. Jonah is not restored to self-defined or self-promote. He is restored to walk humbly and obediently with God. And the work of grace is seen in Jonah as this time he immediately does what God asks him. And he walks that 800 kilometers, smelling like a fish, across the desert to Nineveh to tell wicked people they're doomed. Knowing full well that this is how God brings people to a place of um, humility. It's more than an intellectual exercise now for Jonah. It's more than a vocational exercise for Jonah. Jonah has himself been down the path of rebellion and been down the path of being restored. Bad news leaves a longing for good news and Jonah knows that. Well, Jonah's obedience to God has a profound and remarkable results in the city of Nineveh. Walking around and walking about that great city, calling out against that great city, the, the message that God has given Jonah. And we only get eight words of this message in English. There's five in the Hebrew. So it's remarkably short, but it's dynamically confronting. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now whether this is all Jonah said or, or just a paraphrase of what he said, we don't actually know. But it's... Beauty is in its brevity. It's, it's, it's a shocking reality check that confronts the Ninevites, confronts their way of life, wakes them from their normal rhythms. You must change or you will be overthrown. You will be destroyed. There's nothing in this preaching that suggests anything about Jonah that could have moved the Ninevites. He is not the hero here. It is simply the word of God being spoken. And it's blunt. This is not some kind of wonderful, you know, I have a dream speech, powerful rhetoric. It's just bad news of the human condition before a holy God. But this holy God who delivers this bad news has a heart for Nineveh and seeks to revive them from their sin, seeks to waken them from their rebellion. The great city that, that we read about here does not merely refer to the, the size of Nineveh, this great city Nineveh, but to God's actual interest in Nineveh as well. It can mean both things. God has always had an interest in the city. Cities set culture. Cities tell us uh, 
what to hear, you know. Cities, cities tell us how to behave, what to listen to. Culture comes out of the city, you know. The music, the clothes, whatever, it comes and it tells us how to live. Change the heart of a city. Change the heart of the culture makers and, and change culture. It's the same plan that the Apostle Paul used in the New Testament. He just went from city to city to city. Not merely to do social work, but to tell people the gospel. Bad news that needs good news. Often like Jonah, we can rage against the machine, shake our fist at the city. We don't like what the city's doing to our families. We don't like what the city's doing to morality, to marriages, to sexuality, to whatever it is. And we can just reject the city. We can hide away from the city, shield ourselves from its influence, its wicked culture in our lives. But God says, walk right into the middle of that city and interrupt it. Interrupt its autonomy, its self-discovery, its wicked slumber with an uncomfortable truth that it needs to hear. Yeah, you're free to do as you please, but you're not free from the consequences of your freedom. Walk right into the middle of that city and revive its conscious with its need. Revive its culture with a new narrative of accountability to something beyond self. Of its need to change. Of its need of grace. Now, I don't suggest you wander off into Melbourne or down Swanson Street or maybe down the Strand here, you know, where the post office is and just kind of Get yourself a, one of those milk crates that's out the front of Baker's Delight there and just, just start standing, turn or burn, and start screaming at people. I don't think that's what it's asking us to do. Jonah is a unique character with a pretty confronting and unique uh, message for a unique situation. It's, it's more descriptive than it is prescriptive, even though it is prescriptive that we would confront people with sin. But what we can take out of this is that we need to be prepared to be involved in God's love for wicked people in the city, around us, in our neighborhoods, however costly it is, however intimidating that may be, however anxious we get about delivering the bad news before we get to deliver the good news. Most people know something's wrong. So when the bad news comes, they go, yeah, that makes sense. But what's the good news? They're hoping it can be made right. We need to trust the word of God, no matter how uncomfortable it is to speak with respect to the bad news, is a desperately necessary thing to do in order for people to rightly hear and receive the good news. We're always to speak truth in love. And truth in love is best spoken by those who have been healed by grace. When it just comes out of religious morality, as a general rule of thumb, it leads to doctrinal cruelty. We can whip people, not nurture them. Jonah may not yet be comfortable with the application of grace, but he is unable to deny its scope. He he knows it firsthand. And so he warns Nineveh, that if they don't change, they will be overturned. He is obedient to God's desire for Nineveh at great expense and great cost to himself. 
and to Jonah's great displeasure, which is something of attention to us. Jonah's not exactly what you'd call a model missionary. I don't know why people use Jonah as a missionary passage because he don't want to go. He doesn't want to preach. He is. Well, he's not even successful in a way. Every man, woman and child though, from a peasant in the fields all the way up to the king of Assyria, the king of Nineveh, and here's why Jonah's not successful, believed God and changed their posture from arrogance and pride to humility, fasting and putting on sackcloth. In a book stark with its brevity, it is not without note that the writer dedicates a whole five verses to the repentance of Nineveh. In fact, Jonah has hardly finished speaking and Nineveh is repenting and believing God. They change their posture, their position before God, just as Jonah had done in the fish. He is the real agent of change, the power of God's word. Nothing about Jonah, how slick he was, how forcefully compelling he preached, just the word of God overthrowing, overturning Nineveh. It's interesting. This word overthrown, it is irreducibly linked to God's overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah. Same word, same phrase. And there's no doubt that as this is written, the image of judgment is meant to be conjured up. God is going to bring judgment for wickedness. As Jonah says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Images of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah cannot be denied. But here's the thing. It's also used to describe the turning uh, upside down of something, to to flip it over, literally. Uh, or, Or to encounter a great reversal. A change of heart. It's used for the, this, the deposing of royalty. It has these uses throughout Scripture. The message could also be heard as, yet 40 days and Nineveh will have a change of heart. The word to overthrow here has two senses, good and bad. Good news and bad news. Two sides of the same coin, one leading to the other. Nineveh needed to hear the bad news, in order to experience the good news. The whole thing is climactically brought to a head as the king gets up off his throne and in humility takes off his robes and and his royal dress and dresses in sackcloth and sits in ashes. It's a wonderful picture of how power ultimately needs to acknowledge need beyond its own strength, need beyond what it can accomplish in itself, beyond its own enabling. There's no sense of entitlement, no sense of of contract between the people and the king of Assyria with God. Just recognized need, just demonstrated humility and acknowledgement that they are wrong and they must change. True repentance goes beyond merely feigning rituals. It addresses the heart that commands the actions of people. Listen to the proclamation of the king. Not merely just you know, dress in sackcloth and sit in ashes, but let everyone turn from their wicked ways and the violence that is in their hands. Change who you are. Change your nature. Change who you are. Here is what the conviction of sin 
that comes from hearing the word of God does. And here is what grace enables us to do. It enables kings to get down off thrones, to take off their robes of power and sit in ash and be more secure than they ever were sitting on that throne. All genuine heart change involves giving up our thrones, our idols, our, our, our grasps at power of saving ourselves, of being our own saviours. And all true repentance begins with humility and recognising our need. And then we see God does something extraordinary. He relents. He withholds his wrath from Nineveh. He acts in accordance with his disclosed character and promise. He relents from wrath. He holds back judgment, giving Nineveh time to get to know God. Kind of like Jonah walking through the desert. Nineveh now have time. The prophet's in their midst. They can actually get to know this God. It's a biblical pattern. The whole way through the Old Testament, grace is always on the table before judgment is brought down. That's how God rolls. Noah builds an ark. 120 years, he's preaching righteousness. Get on this boat. When the text says, God turned, God relented, it's not conveying a change in God's mind about something that surprised him. This is God acting in genuine freedom to act in accordance with his promise and character. When Nineveh turns, God is relieved of his moral necessity of punishment, allowing him to do what he desires, and that is to bless humankind. God in love is pursuing sinners to turn from uh, to, to turn them from his wrath. He pursues them that they might turn from their sins and be turned from his wrath. And these things are not mutually exclusive truths, but they do pose a question. And the question is the one that Jonah asks. How can mercy and justice coexist? How can love and wrath be dealt in the same hand? How can good news and bad news come together in the same story? Well, Jonah never gets the answer in this book. The answer never comes. And in fact, we wait 800 years for the answer to come. God's pursuit of the sinner saw him move towards rebels and the wicked personally. Indeed, as we come into Christmas, we are reminded of the extent of God's love for us, of his pursuit for us, of his journey towards us. The word that came to Nineveh now, as we remember at Christmas, now arrives into human history as a baby. The word made flesh, John says. Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew says in his gospel. Jesus is the answer to this question of how can mercy and justice, how can love and wrath exist in the same space? This is Jesus who will one day stand in the city and call people to himself that he is the agent of grace, that he is God come to deal with sin. And that without his offer of grace, all people, or without accepting his offer of grace, all people, good and bad, stand condemned before a holy God. Jesus is the greater sign of God's love for the sinner than what Jonah was to Nineveh. 
You know, Jesus tells the religious leaders that on the day of judgment, because they're having the same problems that Jonah had, they can't work out how God can be loving and forgiving to sinners. And so they're into Jesus about how he, how he moves towards the sinner and has scathing things to say to the religious people. Jesus is outside their categories. And the same message is coming to them. And they aren't responding to it, but the sinners and the wicked people are. It's interesting that at the time of Jonah, when Jonah went to Nineveh, prophets were going to Israel as well. Nineveh hears, it's, Nineveh hears one prophet speak five words and they repent and they respond. Israel, century after century, reject and kill prophets. And here we are again. And Jesus tells the religious leaders on the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And someone greater is here now. Someone greater than Jonah. Not merely a prophet, but the word of God stands before you in flesh. Jesus is where justice and mercy meet. Where the wrath of God towards sin is turned away from us toward him in a way that satisfies God's judgment and justice and restores us and revives sinners through mercy and grace. The king of the universe, down off his throne, humbly, selfishly gives himself in service to us in the place of a cross in a place of shame, in a place of death, in our place. The humility of God to overthrow, to change the hearts of the wicked and the rebel by absorbing the bad news so that we can receive the good news. And when we humble ourselves to the story of Jesus and in humility and repentance accept our need of a saviour, from our own goodness, from our own rebellion, from our own badness, from our own self-indulgence uh, or whatever it is, as God did with Nineveh, he does with us. He acts in accordance with his promises and he relents from his wrath towards us and invites, adopts us into blessing and relationship with him. The great difference between Nineveh and us is that God's wrath has been permanently satisfied in Jesus, a greater Jonah. In Jesus, the wrath of God is permanently set aside. And we are irreversibly changed by grace to walk with God in renewed love and obedience. But the question is, the question we have to answer is, have we sat with that? Have we understood the bad news in order that we might live in and, and, and be enabled to, to walk in humble obedience with the good news? That's the question. And the same God who, who met Jonah on the beach, who never pointed back to all his failures and all his rebellion, but just pointed him forward to where he wanted him to go, is the same God that meets us every day, every morning, with renewed grace for us.